It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Last night, I sat down with Fox Business's Stuart Barney and Univision's Ilya Calderon at the Reagan Presidential Library, where we moderated, or tried to, the second Republican presidential debate. It was quite a night, an amazing experience. It was filled with some pretty memorable moments, a few one-liners, and some pretty heated exchanges as well. There were seven eligible candidates that took the stage. The Republican frontrunner, former President Trump, he did not attend, like just like he didn't the first one. He instead spoke at a non-union auto factory in Michigan amid the ongoing United Auto Workers strike. Had a pretty interesting event, actually. So we'll talk about that a little bit here. Uh, but mostly we'll get debate impressions from my friend joining me today to provide this insightful analysis, as always, is Josh Kroshar. Josh is a Fox News radio political analyst. He is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider and the author of Axios's Sunday Sneak Peek newsletter, which is a must-read. So subscribe to the Sunday Sneak Peek newsletter that is done by Axios. You should just subscribe to Axios, too, because it's good information told in a brief way. Josh was with me in Milwaukee to preview the first Republican debate, and today he sits down with me to provide a recap of last night. So, Josh, welcome back. Great to be here, Dana. What a night. Congratulations on the the great uh, debate moderating performance. I'm still reeling from the whole thing. I sort of feel like, did that just happen? <laughs> I before I, I did have a few butterflies before, but then afterwards, even though I had not had anything to eat or drink at all, I felt like I had had a triple espresso on an empty stomach. Well, the candidates felt like they they they, they showed the urgency of the moment. Uh, it, it was it was quite quite a scene where um, we have four months till Iowa. It's hard to believe that we're getting really close to the first votes in this nominating process. And I I, I think you could see on stage that everyone wanted their their yeah. kind of urgent last digs to, to really set the yeah. So on Monday's tone. podcast, Colin Reed and I talked about how this was a chance and a time for these candidates to say, "Look, I've got what it takes." And I'm not sure if any of them really broke out. I would love your impressions, though. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's a muddle uh, among the alternatives to Donald Trump. And I thought Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley did pretty well. Um, I thought DeSantis, certainly in what he said, his message, portraying himself as the conservative governor who got things done, all, all the issues that are on voters' minds, the economy, energy, uh, education. I thought he had a really good moment. Um, but all the full package, I don't know if he really did enough to, to just make a lot of voters and donors too say, hey, this is the guy that's going to, you know, really give it mm-hmm. to Trump. And Nikki Haley was the most aggressive on stage. I, I thought she had some uh, memorable clashes again with Vivek Ramaswamy. She tried to go after Ron DeSantis. Also, don't forget her a little bit with Tim Scott, Tim Scott her that, fellow senator. Who she appointed, her, her by the way. South Carolina, yeah. There was, there was sort of like some Southern charm to her attack mm-hmm. to against Scott. But I wonder if she came across a little too hot uh, you know, sometimes when you go negative, especially you. when you're on the rise, you can ha- have a moment to be like, hey, guys, like here, you can follow me a little like a little bit chill, a little bit funny. But we let's go back for, to one thing, because they all felt like they needed to have a moment. They all tried to speak at the same time constantly through the debate. And, you know, we tried to keep control as much as possible. Um, I hope I didn't come off as too harsh on a couple of occasions, but it was 
really difficult for anyone at home to hear what they were saying because they were all speaking at once. And I think to the average voter, that just no one wins. No one wins when you can't hear what the candidates have to say about policy. And frankly, like, you know, some of these exchanges, I don't even know what they were arguing over. Like, you know, Nikki Haley was going after Tim Scott back and forth. He couldn't hear what they were saying. It was about the, the drapes at, at the United, United Nations. Nations. That was I really, mean, it seemed a little bit small ball and inside the beltway. Or actually, I, the first thing I thought of was the, what, is it the Statesman? Is that the paper in South Carolina? I thought, well, they'll, they have a lot to cover tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. Um, look, and that's part of the but look politically. If, if you're Nikki Haley, I think you can be pretty happy with with how the debate went. But mm-hmm. you're still dealing with one of your home state lawmakers mm-hmm. competing for the same voters that you're trying to win. So over. in the first debate in Milwaukee, there was a little bit, I, I think, a consensus that Tim Scott sort of faded a bit or was just quiet. He tried to make up for that last night, I think. And he certainly got the first question. Um, your thoughts on how he did last night? I think Tim Scott did well. I thought he had one of the highlights, frankly, of, of, of the debate where he talked about American exceptionalism and how he was able to overcome all, all you know, with his personal struggles to be where he is today and talk about how you can't you should be a victim. Um, it's a big part of his message. It's a big part of why people are so interested in his candidacy. But I don't think he did enough to convince enough voters to, mm-hmm. to, to, to kind of go to mm-hmm. support him over all the other candidates on, on, on stage. I know that he was frustrated that he didn't get a chance to talk about school choice. And one thing for me was just to say, we were, were tr- trying really hard as moderators to figure out how do you make sure that everybody gets a chance to speak, but not everybody can speak on the same question or you couldn't cover a range of issues. And so uh, he, he made that point. I think pretty forcefully in, in the past, but his exchange with Nikki Haley was a little bit tough. He was the first to bring up the article that Mark Thiessen uh, wrote in the Washington Post about Vivek Ramaswamy and deals that had been made in his business early on with China. What did you think of that exchange? Uh, I thought a lot of Republicans laid laid some real punches uh, against Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, and I think it's one of Ramaswamy's biggest vulnerabilities, the fact that as Tim Scott display that there are a lot of investments uh, that Ramaswamy made or a lot, a lot of his businesses had business in China. And the the rap on Ramaswamy is that he had one position a couple of years ago and now he's flip-flopped and China may, may be the latest example of that. Um, look, I think no one on the stage, and this is the same as what happened in Milwaukee, no one really likes Ramaswamy. I think everyone enjoyed on the stage. taking punches But he at had him. a different approach this time and I thought he did better here to me than in Milwaukee because I think he listened to some people who are saying, whoa, you came out really too hot and and too eager and overambitious. And he even sort of alluded to that last night and had some self-deprecation. I thought, I don't know, did that come across to well, you? Well, I, I thought he had a better debate, and I thought he, this was the kinder, gentler Vivek Ramaswamy. Yes. <laughs> it was the Coke classic, less Red Bull from the Milwaukee debate. Um, look, if he didn't, I mean, I think sometimes first impressions matter. So I think he hurt himself by being so amped up but at that still, first he debate. He goes up in the polls a little bit. He, he look, he has, and look, he's the only Republican with Trump offstage that really is running mm-hmm. on that Trump message. I thought he had a great when you were talking to him about the economy. I thought he had a really good answer about regulations. Man, he sounded yep. very Reagan esque uh, yeah. when he when he gave that opening answer. But he also has a lot of baggage. He, he's clearly a very intelligent person who has an incredible story, right? When he, I thought it was very powerful when he talked about his mom and dad. He oh, talked yeah. about his dad being laid off during a strike, a UAW strike, his mom working two jobs, and look what he's been able to do. And I, I got to meet his little boy last night in one of the breaks. That is a cute kid. He is a wonderful family. I mean, yeah. I think he would be well served by highlighting 
more about his personal story, about his family, yeah. about kind yeah. of how he got to be where he is. He's written about that in his books. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very inspiring story. But I think a lot of Americans have looked at him on TV as sort of this fast-talking whiz kid who... <laughs> Um, you know, was very in Milwaukee, very aggressive. I thought he he really laid it back last, you know, this a little week. bit. But he he raised his hand in every opportunity. He certainly did. Um, let's talk about three more candidates. Uh, Chris Christie, your thoughts on that? Uh, well, do, look, Chris Christie's a good debater. Um, I didn't think the line he had about the do, Donald Duck ducking the whatever the you yeah, know. Yeah, he's. A, it was. We'll call you Donald Trump. We'll call you Donald. Right, we'll Duck. call you Donald Duck. It, it, it was a little bit forced and a little cringe. It, it sort of fell flat in the room. But then I did think that the room did laugh when he said, Vivek, put your hand down. <laughs> well, look, Chris Christie is, is just a natural debater. We've talked about this yes. before. Like He's good, and he doesn't need a lot of prep. He just is a natural prosecutor. Um, the problem for Christie, though, is – and he was the only Republican who really aggressively took on Donald Trump. DeSantis did a little bit. A little bit. Haley, I think, got a line against Trump. But, look, the whole mission for Chris Christie right now is to basically be the guy who's – anti-Trump and he looked into the camera and basically gave Trump a message that he's coming after him. Um, the problem is that most of the Republican Party's voters like Trump, uh, even if yep. they're not going to vote for him, they like Trump. So Chris Christie's strategy is to do well in New Hampshire where independents and even Democrats can vote in the primary. It's a little more moderate of, of a state, but that's not a strategy for winning the nomination. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to see mm-hmm. like the long-term play for okay. Chris Christie in this race. Two more candidates to talk about. Vice President Mike Pence? Yeah, I don't think um, this was his finest debate. Uh, he's. I did think it was weird when I asked about Obamacare yeah. and he wanted to talk about gun violence. Yeah, uh, it's never a good sign when you ask a great question and then he had a totally different answer. I didn't even address the question you asked about. Well, basically, I said, so are you saying Obamacare is here to stay? Yeah, yeah. And I think... It's a relevant issue, is, right? It's a major issue. There is a way to, to answer that question. Um, and he finally, he, he got there a little bit. But. Well, and also, I mean, look, well, his decision to talk about gun violence, his, I, I thought he was going to have like a really grand idea about how to deal with school shootings, which is yeah. a really serious issue in, in our country. And his idea was to, to give school shooters the death mandatory death penalty which i don't think is all that unique or innovative of an idea right. so like there was a big wind up for that answer the fact that he didn't answer your question and then it didn't really have the same impact that i think he hoped it would and the last person i want to mention the last candidate i think he had a better debate in a way um well in many ways is doug burgum the governor of north dakota yeah look i think governor burgum has a has a good record he was very eager as you know, Dana, to, to get, get his point. For the very first well, question, he was raising his yes, hand like, and really wanted to make his moment hurt. Every single question we asked, immediately he raised his hand. I could see him. He was in my line of sight. And I was like, sir, I promise we'll get to you. <laughs> I mean, look. But I, I, I know he's frustrated, but he was last to get on the bait stage. He barely made it. Yeah. But he has a really interesting story. He saved his family farm. He created an amazing business. He sold it to Microsoft. He came back. He's a public servant. North Dakota is a very well-run state. And I think that Ron DeSantis was like, yeah, but it's not complicated. I mean, he has a great message when it comes to energy. He's probably, mm-hmm. he's, like you said, at the debate. I mean, China, he has a lot of experience. He talked about that uh, quite a bit. But the challenge is like he almost didn't make the cut at this debate right. and he's just trying to hang on and, and, and it, it, he has a lot of money to, to spend. He's trying to make a play in Iowa. He's trying to get better known to voters that live near, near his home state, but it's just going to be a challenge to see him getting much momentum going forward. All right. I think that that is going to wrap up this segment, but before we head to the break, I've got a candidate quotable, which presidential candidate is responsible for the following statement. The former president 
He's missing in action tonight. He's had a lot to say about that. He should be here explaining his comments to try to say that pro-life protections are somehow a terrible thing. We'll have the answer to who said that coming right up. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And we're back with Perino on Politics. Josh Crosher and I continue our conversation. I wanted to ask you a couple of things on, on the issues. There was a question I asked about flipping a blue state which is Arizona right now, maybe called a purple state. But my question was, if there is an abortion referendum on the ballot in Arizona in 2024, and we've seen what these abortion referendums have done with other states, traditionally red states, uh, Kansas, Ohio, Wisconsin come to mind, that Republicans lose. So my question to Ron DeSantis was, so how are you going to convince pro-choice independent voters in Arizona, which is a must-win state for the Republicans, to vote for you. And he kind of said, oh, it'll be easy. Is it? The issue is a suddenly a challenging one for Republicans to address because, look, I think when you look at polls, Dana, many, many voters, majority, support a 15-week abortion ban with exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother. That's that's sort of the sweet spot politically. But DeSantis signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida. He, his, I think his thinking is that he needed to get to the right of Donald Trump. He needed to show that he was more conservative than Donald Trump. But it's interesting that Donald Trump now is sort of giving hints that he's frankly more moderate and he's more flexible when it comes to abortion policy and what he would do as, as president and maybe not sign or, or mm-hmm. advocate for a federal abortion ban of, of any kind. Um, so Look, DeSantis has sort of staked out a lot of conservative space on abortion that may help him in Iowa. I mean, Iowa, you have a lot of pro-life voters, a lot of socially conservative voters, and DeSantis is putting all his chips on the table on that Iowa caucus, doing well in the Iowa caucus. But Trump, frankly, is looking more like he's sort of trying to pivot to the middle already. He even said after he didn't show up at the debate, but he's he's trying to make the message that he is already thinking ahead to the general election and he's not having to pander to pro-life activists. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because this is what I wanted to ask you about. I felt like last night when I knew that Joe Biden's campaign had just put out an ad that's a general election ad, really, one of the first that they've put out, and it is targeting only one Republican, and that is Donald Trump. They are ignoring the rest of the primary, just as President Trump wishes all of us would just do and get this over with. And let's just admit that the two front runners are going to be the front runners. And that's what they both want. And certainly Biden wants to run against Trump and he's trying to make it look like that's the general election. Your thoughts on that approach? Well, look, it also shows that the Biden campaign is concerned about Donald Trump. And they're seeing the same polls that we, you know, that we were all looking at showing that if the race was held today, it would be pretty much a tie. And they're trying to get ahead of things. And Trump is trying to get ahead of things uh, in anticipating what could be a rematch uh, that is going to be a long, hard slog throughout 2023 and 2024. Um, look, the the visit that both Biden and Trump made to Detroit this week, where Biden, uh, after hearing that Trump was going to Detroit to speak to to, to workers, mm-hmm. he goes to the picket line and tries to one up him. And and there's going to be a big fight that's already taking place. There's already not just in the ads, Dana, but but the travel, the strategies, the mm-hmm. tactics that both campaigns are using, well, looking ahead to the general election. In fact, I believe Joe Biden is in 
Arizona today. He's given a speech at the McCain, I believe, the McCain Institute yeah. about de- democracy, about the future of democracy. And- really interesting because if you look at that NBC poll when they said, what are the issues you care about most? Democracy was number one, not even the economy. I couldn't understand that, but that's what that poll said. Well, it's interesting because the Biden campaign looks at the midterms and there was a lot of naysayers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the conventional wisdom was that the economy was going to really be a drag on the Democratic Party's fortunes and Biden's approval rating was not, not great then. And they overachieved expectations. They held uh, the Senate. They, they barely lost the House. But I don't look. Trump is a different figure. Trump is not Trump is not all the Republicans that ran for Senate last time. He has a unique ability to turn out his supporters, to energize his base. So it's a different ball game. And and look, I think the issue of democracy, the issue of January sixth, mm-hmm. going to be a big issue in the campaign. Yeah. But the economy is the number one issue for, for voters. Right one more question on the debate, and then we're going to take a break and, and finish out with a couple of more look ahead moments with current events. What do you think has to happen between now and the third debate? On the Republican side for those candidates, does the field need to narrow before then? It, it does. I mean, look, it does. We're running running low on time before um, we have the Iowa caucuses in, in, in January of 2024. Look, Trump is already in some polls close to a majority or yep. more than a majority of the Republican vote. Yeah. So the, the need to find an alternative who can go head to head with Trump is, is, is of the essence. Well, and, that's why I asked the question about the survivor question at the end. Yeah. But I said, OK, who, which one of you is... Wh- I'm, I was actually kind of surprised that nobody took me up on it, though looking back, maybe I should change that. Let me back up. If you didn't see the debate, at the end of the debate, I said, it's pretty clear that if this field doesn't narrow, if you, if the Republicans don't cons- basically coalesce around one candidate, President Trump is going to win. And so who should be voted off the island? And they all were like, oh my gosh, we could never do that. When I will tell you, everybody listening, believe me when I tell you that their campaigns call us every single day to play that game and to tell us who should be voted off the island. It feels like 2016 all over again, except this time Trump was a former president and is Mm -hmm. functionally like an incumbent and no one wants to kind of give up a little bit of their own self-interest to do what's good for the party or do what's good for what they're arguing for. So, I mean, Chris Christie, you know, he he thinks he can do well in New Hampshire, but that's really his only state where Mm -hmm. where he's polling effectively. But he says he's sticking around. Um, I talked to somebody at the RNC who told me that they believe that of the seven candidates last night, that they could imagine six could still be remaining by Iowa. And I thought, well, we'll see how the voters feel about that. Well, we talked just talked about Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. I mean, they're both from South Carolina. They both compete for similar types right. of voters. And it doesn't look like anyone or either of them is going to be stepping aside before South Carolina. Okay. So before we head to break, here's the answer to your candidate quotable. The former president, um, you know, he's missing in action tonight. He's had a lot to say about that. He should be here explaining his comments to try to say that pro-life protections are somehow a terrible thing. Yes, that would be none other than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We'll have more Perino on politics coming right up. Welcome back to Perino on politics. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I want to ask you about something that has to do with politics, but it's also just an interesting moment in time. We've been following the story on Capitol Hill about a possible government shutdown because they can't get a budget done. This is, I think, frustrating the American people that Washington can't do the basics. So tell me about that sentiment. And also, what does it mean for the Republican Party on the House side? Kevin McCarthy, it's funny, I saw him not too long ago, and he does look noticeably thinner than he had been. And he said, oh, yes, some people think I'm on Ozempic. And I tell them, no, I'm on the five seat majority diet. (laughs) 
Be stressed. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to be uh, Speaker McCarthy right now because passing anything through this narrowly divided house with, with those small margins is not easy. And his right wing uh, are, are making it as stressful and, and, and ungovernable, frankly, as possible. And look, uh, this is the worst possible timing. Um, not only I think normal people are looking at what's going on in Washington. You are hired. If you if you vote for lawmakers, your job is to pass a budget. Your job is to pass legislation and work together and get things done. And it looks like we're, we're likely to see a government shutdown because you have uh, elements, certainly in the House Republican caucus, that just want to say no and don't want to get to yes for an answer. And, and it's a it's a real challenge that McCarthy is facing right now. And it's not easy to get out of that mess. Um, and I look, I think there's a larger political impact because Biden is getting crushed on the economy. Democrats are down 20 plus points in mm-hmm. recent polls on which party is better equipped to handle the economy. Well, if Republicans own this government shutdown, as it seems like they will, that's going to hurt their image as being a good steward of the government, of being someone who's mm-hmm. fiscally responsible and, and can can manage uh, government affairs effectively. And look, Biden is surely, he doesn't have a lot of weapons to use to argue for that the economy is doing great. He's not succeeded at selling Bidenomics to the American public, but Republicans are giving him an, an opportunity to go yeah. after them, and that's going to have a, a political impact. That's not that's going to help Biden. Uh, improve the other thing that's about to happen is this childcare cliff. I brought up childcare last night. I thought the answers were so so, but basically, there's billions of dollars of pandemic era aid to childcare centers that ends in two days on Saturday. And up to 70,000 childcare centers will close. And moms and dads, not just of low-income families, but everywhere, they're seeing upwards of 50% of their monthly income to go to childcare. This is a major problem, a major crisis. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do feel for the moms and dads out there. That was kind of missing for me last night. Where was the emotion for them? Like, who's going to fight for them? That was such an important question. I, I thought Nikki Haley handled it okay. Uh, she, I think she had she drew on her personal experience in, in her answer to that question. But Biden is struggling when it comes to the economy. People don't trust him as being able to handle uh, economy where gas prices are up, inflation is, is, is still you know too high, uh, interest rates get going up to, to handle that inflation and. I think they also they want to hear policy, but they also want to hear empathy. They, the, yeah. A lot of voters just want to hear yeah. that these candidates, these Republican candidates care about them and what they're going to do to help their day to day lives. And I don't know if you heard a lot of that on, on the stage. I think you're right, Dana, that, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of talk about taxes and regulation and a lot of policy that we talk about in Washington on a day to day basis. But how does it affect an average, mm-hmm. you know, working mom's life yeah. in terms of childcare, in terms of all the day-to-day needs that they, they, mm-hmm. they rely on? Last point here, there was a bipartisan moment on Capitol Hill. In fact, there was unanimous consent in the Senate to restore the dress code. So Senator Schumer last week relaxed the dress code for one person, Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, who wants to wear hoodies and shorts and flip-flops on the Senate floor. And Senator Schumer thought, okay, fine, you know what, I'm going to change the dress code just for this guy. And believe it or not, the rest of the Senate said, not so fast. And now we have bipartisan consensus in D.C., at least on one issue, Josh. That shows politics working, I guess, because <laughs> when Chuck Schumer made a special rule for Fetterman, it's it's kind of absurd that in in, in the most august body in in, in 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 Washington, you would have everyone wearing suits and then John Fetterman wearing wearing a hoodie. And I mean, it's just Dick Durbin, many Democrats Josh, I have a feeling found that, that ridiculous. The calls into the Senate Senate offices from constituents, angry constituents, were probably overwhelming. 
I, mean, I, I think that actually happened. I, I do think that Senator Manchin, who brought the resolution, was sincere in thinking it was preposterous. But I also think that all the senators were like, why are we having this fight? Yeah. Well, when I heard Dick Durbin, who's yes. Chuck Schumer's number two, say, go on TV no. and say, this is, no, I, I can't agree with my. I think, so that's a good outcome. So we can end so, on a high note. And it's a high note always to see you, Josh. We have a little bit of trivia for you. I'm going to just choose one category for you. Okay. This candidate never graduated from college, dropping out of Pomona College after two years to pursue a singing career. Oh, wow. So the, the candidate on stage. No, not, a, not oh. a candidate on stage, a candidate in this race writ large. I can give you three possibilities. Okay. Asa Hutchinson, Marianne Williamson, or Charlie Brown. Uh. Asa Hutchinson? No, it was Marianne Williamson. Oh, it then wasn't wasn't so easy then, was it? But I'm yeah, who would have known that she dropped out of the Mona College after two years to a singing yeah. career. Okay. Um loved being with you. Thank you for the time. Thanks, we are literally shutting down this week. We are the only ones left here at the Reagan Library. So see you next week. Thanks, Dana. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.